Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Trent Hone, all the way from Virginia in the US. Trent is a naval historian, uh, the author of this book, uh, for those of you watching, uh, The Learning War, The Evolution of Fighting Doctrine in the US Navy, 1898 to 1945. And the reason that I got to know Trent is he also wrote a book in a chapter in this book, uh, Kinevin, or it gets, is now known as Kevin at 21, um, the book of the uh, celebrating 21 years of the Kinevin framework. And for those of you familiar with that, it's developed by Dave Snowden, who's been a regular on this podcast uh, and a big influencer on my work um, in the field of complexity thinking and theory. So I guess the Venn diagram of, of naval history and Kinevin and complexity thinking is what we're going to get to explore in this episode, I hope. So welcome, Trent. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very pleased to be here. Yeah. Great. Um, now, I know pretty much zero of uh, nothing of, of naval history or military history in general. So it was, it, was, it was great, actually, to read this book and take a dive into a subject. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty unfamiliar with. I learned kind of lots of new jargon in, in the book. But I suppose what really came out was, um, yeah, this idea of the kind of the softer human aspect to what I suppose tends to get stereotyped as, as quite a rigid institution, you know, whether it be the Navy or the, 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 the army or in any military. And it, so it's fascinating to me to understand um, the depth at which um, the leaders in these organizations were exploring human dynamics <laughs> in, in pursuit of some level destroying other humans, but nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it, yeah. It was, there is uh, an iron. There is an irony there, isn't there? Right. So, so the military has uh, one of its core purposes is to um, win wars, which involves killing other people. Uh, but they have to use people to do it. Um, yeah. So they have to become astute students of, of human nature and, and, and motivation. I think as well. That was something that, um, as I get farther into it, uh, fascinates me more and more. Uh, because you're right, we do have sort of this sense of military being a certain way, being rigid and uh, doctrinal in a way where there's, you're trying to push out conformity, right? Because yeah. in, when you are in a, a life or death, high pressure situation, sometimes behaving the right way, it, it makes a tremendous difference. Uh, but there has to be some flexibility that comes along with that because you can't tell people, you know, and the, the Kinevin framework, I think is very good about this, particularly when it comes into thinking about the, the complex domain. You can't tell people how to behave based on what's going to emerge because the future is unpredictable. So you have to equip them to, to be able to act for themselves. And yeah. I think as we look at, at military organizations, you can see a clear trend of trying to figure out how to, how to get better at that through the years. Yeah. Equipping people. That's right. And this idea of doctrine and indoctrination, these, this is a really strong theme in this book is that over time that the Navy got, I suppose, more sophisticated in developing a, a doctrine that would work for them. Uh, the U.S. Navy, this that is, and um, and and this that word indoctrination has so much baggage with it. We tend to think of like re-education camps and cults, and but but I suppose in this context we're talking about something quite different. I wonder if we should open that this conversation with, you know, what what do we mean by doctrine and and what's it's important in the context of this idea of the the learning war? That's a great place to start because one of the things that I was really fascinated by is in this time period, early in, in the time period of, uh, of the book, the United States Navy is beginning to 
define doctrine for itself. And, and it's very different from the way many of us would define it, particularly if we're coming to it from uh, like a religious aspect where we're told, you know, this is the right behavior that you should, that you should employ, the right action that you should engage in. And instead, uh, uh, a fairly young officer, a man named Lieutenant Commander Dudley Knox, was at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, and began to think about as, as fleets get larger in size and as it becomes more and more difficult to communicate directly with uh, signal halyards and, and the like, how can you ensure concerted action in the absence of, of instructions or orders? How, how do you make sure that we can act cohesively? And he thought doctrine was the way to do this. And he was looking to um, the Prussian military, their success in, in the war against France in 1870, and some sort of more Native American ideas, not not uh, not uh, the indigenous people of the United States, but native in terms of uh, native to the United States. And he felt that a good way to do this would be to just collect shared understanding through um, exercises, primarily tabletop exercises, which uh, war games, which the Naval War College was doing quite a bit of. And through that, develop some habits, some norms of how we might behave. If we were a group of, uh, of officers challenged to, to bring our ships into a fight um, without being able to communicate. So you can develop a sense of how people are going to behave based on developing circumstances, establish some, some norms, and uh, then bring out some more coherent action. And I think that's quite different from how we think about doctrine today and even somehow some militaries think about doctrine today because they've got a manual. Here's what it says you should do. You know, when certain circumstances happen, turn to the right page in the manual, execute those steps. Um, this is more develop a contextual understanding of your colleagues and the circumstances and then act appropriately based on, based on that. Right. And right at the end of the book, you actually contrast the U.S. Navy with the British Navy, where perhaps doctrine had come to mean something far more prescriptive and rigid. Um, off the talk about the the shadow of Trafalgar, right? This idea that you know they're sort of they've developed these habits that of success, which have actually become their Achilles' heel because they've become too rigid, right? Whereas yeah. the US didn't have that history. Yeah, one of the things that I think is is fascinating about this history is uh, the, the there is the Battle of Jutland in 1916. Uh, the German Navy, the Royal Navy, come together. Um, it, the result, in, to some degree, is, is not wholly satisfying uh, to the Royal Navy, right? Because there is this theme of Nelsonian victory, Trafalgar, and 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 others, and uh, that doesn't happen. And the U.S. Navy looked at it, right? There's the largest sea battle, of World War One. What happened? How did it work? Um, and one of the things they take from it is they think, hmm, the, the instructions given to rel- subordinate commanders in the Royal Navy were probably too, too precise, didn't give them enough flexibility. So we want to avoid that. It's it, very clear that that's a line of thinking in, in the U.S. Navy. And that is interesting to me because it's a criticism that has uh, been reawakened in recent years. There's a, a good book called The Rules of the Game by Andrew Gordon that basically that's what it's about. It, it looks at um, the evolution of battle tactics in the Royal Navy from more or less from Trafalgar to Jutland and, and makes the argument that it be, they, they became a little bit too rigid, uh, a little bit too pre-planned. And that is not as effective in, you know, the complex emergent situation of a naval battle. Right. Right. And then, and all of this, I mean, a lot of this, your book and this, this period of history centers around this, the Solomon Islands, this chain of islands, right. And the, the Pacific mm-hmm. war 
And it did struck me as we were talking about it that you've got this distributed sort of battle context, haven't you? Um, and and so perhaps it's to, to, at some level that call for a, a you know a, a different approach to leadership and, and management of the of the fleet. Yeah, the the Solomons are fascinating because they um, they show how some of the assumptions that the United States Navy and I think the Navy of Imperial Japan as well brings to the conflict that World War II in the Pacific are wrong. Uh, they don't work out, and and this is not surprising. A lot of times, you know, organizations or militaries will go into a dynamic situation, and their assumptions will be will be disproven. Uh, but it's particularly challenging for the U.S. Navy's approach because they've assumed that some of their formations will be relatively static, and the approach to doctrinal development that Knox introduced relies on that. Right. So, if you and I are part of a destroyer division, we should be expected to get together periodically understand how we're going to fight together. We, we might have some plans about, you know, the range we were going to open fire at or, or how the, the maneuvers we might use. Uh, but there is some doctrine that's built through that familiarity that we're expected to develop. And because of the pressures of war in the Atlantic and the Pacific, the United States Navy can't keep those formations together. They're not cohesive anymore. So instead of you and I having months or years of familiarity with each other, we might have met each other yesterday. And now we have to go figure out how to fight. And, and if you've ever played a, a really talented, practiced team as like a pickup group, you know, say you yeah. go to the, the football pitch and, and you're trying to play, you know, Manchester United with just your buddies who go to the pub every day, uh, you're going to lose. <laughs> it's just not going to do well, no matter how athletically talented you are. And it's a similar situation. It's a, it's a pickup team on the U.S. Navy side versus a more practiced team often on the side of Japan. And uh, the, the results are, are in some ways as you would expect. And, and the US Navy falls back on just what I call uh, heuristics. So rather than a cohesive plan, it's, it's how, how, do we, how do we fight? What are the um, approaches that we have built in over the years to, to try to figure out how to act at battle? And, and they emphasize uh, opening fire with their guns very quickly, very early. Radar gives some advantage in that capability, but they can't make sense of the battle around them and, and their, their formations disintegrate. And it's, it's very problematic. But that leads to some um, innovations. Uh, I could go into that, but I want to give you a chance to inject and see if there's somewhere else you want to steer the conversation. No, no, I think, I think let, let's talk about it. But I, you know, I, I just remember there's a, there's, it's Admiral Pai, right? He's sort of criticizing, hasn't he, some of the, the failures in this, this campaign in the specific. And, he talks about no, no planning and, and no indoctrination. And I'm very familiar with that idea that, you know, you, you need to have some level of planning, but this also this idea that we need to have this indoctrination, I suppose, is a bit less familiar, perhaps, to people to think in those terms. If, you know, you've all had, you know, piss poor preparation um, predicts poor performance or whatever, right? Um, but you don't hear sort of piss poor indoctrination is is going to cause you a problem, right? So, I, you know, I'm just, I suppose, really emphasizing for me that was something I picked up on. Yes, yes. So at that time, Pai has, uh, he was commander of uh, the, the battle force at the time of, of Pearl Harbor and commands the Pacific Fleet momentarily after Admiral Kimmel is relieved for a couple of weeks. But then he goes eventually to the to the Naval War College. He's president of the Naval War College through much of much, much of the war. And so, yeah, he's he's commenting on this and lack of plans, lack of indoctrination. This is a problem. And many uh, historians prior to, to what I was doing have come at that and and looked at it and said, oh, 
there wasn't a doctrine. We didn't have a doctrine in the U.S. Navy to fight at, at night combat, sort of the conclusion that they reached. And it's more subtle than that. It's these formations and, and then the officers within them didn't have time to develop a doctrine because that's what they were expected to do. There are uh, standard operating uh, approaches for night combat, like the emphasis on gunfire that I said before. That was one of the things that the U.S. Navy emphasized. Uh, at night, as soon as you see a target, open fire. Don't bother taking the range. Try to figure out the range by where the shell splashes land relative to the target. You know, just so, stop so, firing. Right. Yeah, just start shooting. Um, because, it, it, you know, at that time, uh, you know, sighting ranges are relatively relatively short. They're so close that, that the ships have the capability of knocking each other out of action in, in just a few minutes. And they do. Um, so this lack of indoctrination is problematic, but it's, it's problematic because the formations are cohesive. But the other major problem is there are so many new sensor capabilities. I mentioned radar. That's a new thing. Um, and I think this is, this is quite logical in, in hindsight, but it leads to a problem. The U.S. Navy channelized radar development in terms of existing organizational structures and, and, and policies. So you had two technical bureaus, one which was the, the Bureau of Ordnance, and they're responsible for guns and armor. So they take radar. They say, all right, we're going to use radar to control the guns better. We'll develop radars that allow us to determine the range to an enemy target and, and make the gunfire more precise. Cool. And then there's the, the Bureau of Ships or, or what had been before that, the, the Bureau of Construction and Repair and the, and the Bureau of Steam Engineering. They, they combined to form the, the Bureau of Ships and they're responsible for search radars. What, what is the world around us? Let's, let's look at other ships. Let's look at land formations and let's help navigation because that is more within our sphere. So you get ships that have these various radar suites that are in the information of which is you know, being channels through the various departments. And it results in confusion because there's no centralized processing mechanism aboard the ship to make sense of all this information until it gets to, to the captain's brain. And the captain has to try to figure out on the fly what's going on. And, and there aren't standard terms or discussing what radar contacts are or, or reporting the range to them. Uh, and if you go through and read some of these action reports and try to put yourself in the position of some of these officers, you can realize, wow, this must have been horribly frustrating and confusing because the, the world is chaotic around them. They're not getting the information they need or they're getting too much information. It's obvious from the commands that they then issue that they're not making sense of it. Um, and then they don't have a doctrine to fall back on, a, a sort of a cohesive way of how we are going to go into battle and fight together. And the beneficial thing is they write these kinds of things fairly honestly in action reports. So if, if they are fortunate enough to survive, they write down their experiences, they record what happened, they describe it. And this comes back up through the command hierarchy. And eventually it starts to get, well, not eventually, relatively quickly, it gets to the staff of the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz. And he and his staff start looking at this and you know, there's a problem here, right? We've got radar, we've got information, but we're not making sense of it. Now, they don't exactly use those terms. I'm using those terms because we're familiar with them now. Um, and they start saying, well, we got to do radar better. And in the midst of the Solomon battles, in November 1942, they come out with a new, uh, uh, it, it, new guidance. Uh, I think it's a letter um, that basically says, "Look, 
all the ships in the fleet, you've got to create something. And initially they say you've got to create a combat operations center. It gets changed to combat information center or CIC. Go make one of these. And what I love about this order is it's, it's only a couple of pages long and it says what that group is going to do, what your CIC is going to do, you know, gather all the information, make sense of it, and then provide it in an actionable format to the command function of the ship and, and its weapons. But staff, Nimitz and his staff don't say how. They say, go do this. Go figure it out. And why I thought this was a great story to include in the Kinevin book is because what that springs, you, you can see how this fits the probe, sense, respond um, guidance for the complex domain. Because it's parallel experimentation. All the different ships start figuring out, well, how are we going to make a CIC? What room are we going to use for it? Or a compartment? What compartment is going to get turned into the CIC? Who's going to be in there? How are we going to do this? Uh, and all that parallel experimentation allows a broader search through different options and alternatives that is contextually sensitive to the ship type. So, you know, destroyers, which are small uh, and not well armored, but fast. And they have guns and torpedoes develop a different sort of approach to creating a CIC than, than battleships, which are larger, generally slower, much more heavily armored and have much more powerful guns because the ship types are different. The kinds of ways in which they'll probably fight are different. And so they take different approaches to creating CICs. And the way that the order is issued without a lot of specific guidance, you know, desired outcomes, but not how to get there, um, fosters that. And I think, I think it's, a, it's a really neat story for us. Even now, because so often, so many of us who are in positions of authority think, well, I, I've got to provide some guidance on how to do this. You know, otherwise it's going to be chaos. Right. Yeah. Or, or how can I possibly trust these guys to get it right? Like just off the bat. Right. 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 Yeah, well, maybe we should go create some prototypes, work out how to do it <laughs> in a lab or whatever the equivalent would be in a Navy and then, uh, and then roll it out. Right. That's a, that's a predictable sort of linear way of thinking. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Figure it out in the lab and then roll it out. But when you roll it out, lab's different. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same. And you're going to run into problems. Um, and and it doesn't, you know, all the initial attempts don't work. I mean, I don't, I don't want uh, listeners to think that uh, Nimitz provides this instruction and then all these experiments are brilliant. I mean, some of them don't work out well. There's a whole series of additional fighting in the Solomon Islands through about the middle of 1943, where the Navy, the U.S. Navy is working out its approaches to the combat information center and how to make it work. And some of those don't work well. Right, right. But, you know, and you, you, you refer to Nimitz as a... As, uh, I don't know, elite, a pioneer, not perhaps not a pioneer, but somebody um, who provided for a great deal of psychological safety. And you sort of, you hear it in that story, right? That he's, he's making it safe for people to fail. He's opening it up and implicitly or explicitly, he must have been said, and it's okay if some of you get it like wrong initially, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a patience to the way he, he commands, which I think is, is really interesting. And there, there are anecdotes that I didn't, Included in the book, they're going to they're going to be in in a forthcoming work about um, how he how he approached command. Um, I do think I included in there his willingness to, um, well, not just willingness, but the way he liked to introduce himself to new captains. You know, they, because it, throughout much of the war, he was based in Pearl Harbor, and new ships on their way to the Pacific would stop there, and he would invite the captains to come see him. You know, just for a few minutes. You know, just so that he could get a sense of who they are. 
but also I think to impress upon them this, this idea that he had confidence in them, that he trusted them, right. that he expected them to use their skill and creativity to the fullest. And I think that's important. Yeah. And I think that's something that we sometimes, you know, well, it's important to emphasize in this, I, this, I suppose this leadership strategy that we're talking about in complexity, where we say there are these enabling constraints. And in this case, you might say it was the, you know, the, the parameters of this kick that he'd, the CIC that he'd outlined. Um, and then obviously the constraints of each ship in order to implement it. Um, but also the trust, right? You've got, you've got to have a kind of high level of trust to allow people to go out and run these parallel experiments, which you expect some of which to fail. Um, and I think that's something it's, you know, it's worth emphasizing and this, you know, underpinned by this psychological safety idea. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah there's got, there's got to be, uh, I, I love that you're bringing enabling constraints in it. it, it it's uh, amusing to me. We, we broadly, uh, I have seen sort of Twitter arguments about like, what is actually an enabling constraint versus a governing constraint or a top-down constraint. And, and, and I feel like some of that misses, misses the point because it has to be very contextual. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and, and I prefer to just think about what are the, what are the constraining elements and yes, the ship types, um, you know, <laughs> the war itself is a constraining element, but it, it, the culture that Nimitz tries to create where, yeah, it is okay to have some failure. It is okay to make some experimentation. Learn from it, though, right? That that is an important piece of it, and you can see that. You can see um, in how officers are treated. You know, they are allowed to make to have some experiments that don't work out. But if they make a mistake repeatedly, or if they make a mistake that Nimitz um, or someone else feels like they probably shouldn't have made, given the knowledge that they had or the knowledge that had already been gained, then they probably get routed somewhere else. So, so right, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amy Edmondson makes that point in her um, The Fearless Organization book that, mm. that you, you sort of have two different approaches to, to uh, mistakes. There, there, there is the failures that result from lack of knowledge, you know, and there you want to you want to celebrate the knowledge that got gained. And don't punish the people. And then there is are the mistakes that result from from you know, sort of not conforming to the to standards that we've established as, as an organization. And there you want to make sure that, OK, that's not allowed. That's not the kind of behavior that we want. Um, so psychological psychological safety has its has its boundaries. But I think if you if you draw that distinction clearly, I mean, and you can think about it, right? You, it, like in today's environment, you want to make sure that people are experimenting um, and pushing the boundaries of their knowledge to help the organization. But if they're you know if they're harassing their colleagues, if they're behaving like like jerks, you, you want to get them out because that diminishes the overall psychological safety. Yeah, no, I can I can. I can see that. And um, what's that line? You know, autonomy without accountability is just a vacation, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some boundaries. Yeah. Um, but the other thing you mentioned here, I think is really important is after action reports, like this honest appraisal of what happened, what went wrong at a factual level. And we had another guy who worked in bomb disposal, uh, a guy called Ben Sawyer, um, who uh, came on the podcast and he emphasized that in bomb disposal operations, you know, it was, it was, it was a habit, right? They, they would always, they would always write the report and they would always spend time together as a team. And this is a much, obviously much tighter teams in bomb disposal. Um, and go over honestly what had happened and, you know, the wash up afterwards. And of course, that's now becoming an established practice in terms of software teams and with the agile community. But it, you know, from, from my understanding, this has been a core 
element of of sort of military culture um you know for 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 a long time mhm yes uh, one of the things that i think is quite interesting though is how it's fairly standardized in terms of the, the the template that the U.S. Navy employed. Like, what what sections are we, we going to we going to write to? There's a great deal of variability, especially early in the war. You know, you'll you'll get uh, ship captains who you know, will write 20 pages. You'll get others who will, who will write three. Right. Yeah, so the, the level of fidelity varies varies a good deal. That becomes a bit more standardized later in the war as as, as staffs get larger and and there's sort of a a greater sense of what we should be doing or what we should be capturing. Um, but, but that's, that's interesting to me. And. Um, right. And do you think that, that indicates a certain level of gaming with those reports and ass covering, or <laughs> is it just. There you know? are, there are definitely documents that read that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there are others where it's like, um, You'll, you'll get someone who's relatively junior filling it out because the more senior officers aboard the ship didn't survive. And, and those are, are fairly raw, you know, very much, I think, a- accurate descriptions, best as could be remembered of what happened. And you'll get other ones that are a bit more, uh, wouldn't go so far as to sort of, you know, say they're CYA, but they're, they're sort of putting people in, in the best light. They're not, as, they're not as frank. They're not as honest an assessment. Right. But they were coming back in in relation to the CICs. Was did that start? Did, did those start to come back? And that was one of the drivers of the evolution of it. Of oh, absolutely. There yeah. uh, uh, there are a number of different feedback loops which get triggered. One of the ones which is hardest to trace is is the kind of in the combat zone um, collaboration that occurs because you know captains will come back to a port and, and and the other members of the ship and they'll get together and they'll talk. And so procedures were improving that way, right? Well, you know, what did you do? How did, how did, you, how did you track things? How did, where did you put the radar? Uh, and there's an evolution there that you can see hints of in, in the action reports. But the action reports are a more formalized mechanism. They come back. And so there are schools that are set up. They're, they're usually called radar schools. To, to, but really what they are are sort of educational um, institutions around how to train officers to work in or run uh, combat information centers and the information from the action reports feeds back into those and the mechanism uh, one of the mechanisms that's used to to improve those uh, the navy called them type commands so uh, type type of ship so there's a destroyer type command a cruiser type command and those review the action reports look at the procedures and then feed that back into sort of more standard um, manuals that get to, get issued um, and through that mechanism and the the training of of, uh, of the schools, you can see how combat information center procedures begin to sort of channelize into the best approaches that emerge. And so, by a year after Nimitz's uh, instructions, by November 1943, the situation has turned around. Um, the formations are more cohesive, so that helps. But the procedures are there. And so the Navy knows how to use the capabilities on hand. And um, although Japanese techniques have also evolved, they haven't evolved quite as rapidly. And um, the Navy wins two victories that month, November 1943, that really illustrate how uh, the situation at night has changed and the Japanese now have a significant disadvantage. Right. And as a large, large part due to this evolution of these combat information centers on the ships and their ability to coordinate and the, I get the doctrine around that. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, the doctrine that emerges around that from, from having formations that are more cohesive and then the policies for using it. And, and it gives, um, I feel like I've sort of skipped over this because <laughs> I assume it's known, but what it gives is the, the captains and the officers aboard these ships, a very clear sense of the world around them, right? The radars can be used to track, uh, not only friendly ships, but enemy ships. So, so you can operate them much more like you would, uh, if you had visibility, if you could see. Right. And so, uh, coordinated, the coordinated use of distributed formations becomes possible. What, what the Navy was doing in 1942 is trying to keep formations cohesive so that they were together in a, in a concentrated bunch. And, and that restricts your ability to, to, um, use guns and torpedoes together. And by 1943, they've, they've learned how to, um, have coordinated actions with multiple formations. But so you could close the enemy with one group and fire torpedoes before opening fire, before revealing your position. And then at about the time the torpedoes are expected to arrive, you can open fire with the other group with their guns and, and, uh, not exactly a crossfire, but it's akin to one, right? Because the enemy is subjected to two types of attacks simultaneously. Um, and it, and it worked very well. Right. And, and why is it that, that so many of these attacks were happening at night? Well, that is uh, an excellent question. A lot of it has to do with, with the air power, right? The airplanes are becoming much more effective. Um, the, the initial fighting in the Solomons happens at night because uh, the allies, uh, the United States and, and, and its allies, seized the island of Guadalcanal uh, sort of in the southern portion of the Solomons chain. The Japanese had been building an airfield there, had been completed. Um, the uh, allies who land there complete it. And so they have effective dominion over the skies of the island during the day. The nearest uh, Japanese land plane base is at Rabaul, which is, you know, sort of at the, at the northwestern tip of, of the Solomon chain. And it's a very long distance. Their planes can range, but they, they cannot loiter over the island for a long time. And so any Japanese ships that are coming to the island will be subjected to aerial attack. So they will close it during the daylight hours, but still remain fairly far away and then uh, try to approach it at night to land reinforcements or to bombard the airfield and to try to damage the, the airplanes there. And U.S. Navy ships try to stop them. So there's a lot of fighting at night. Um, and this sort of theme carries through a lot of that fighting in, in the Solomon Islands. Right, right. And, that, and I guess the, again, the importance of having, you know, obviously radar and other means of detecting ships at night mm. yeah, becomes paramount. And And... And then this other, how does this doctrine, because the, the opposing doctrine, from what I understand from reading this from the Japanese side, is one of, of at least is one of surprise, right? That at stealth and surprise, is that right? And how did that play in? Well, the, the, the Japanese are at a serious disadvantage through the years leading up to World War II because they have been restricted by, by treaty. Their, their battle line must be smaller. Um, so for every... Uh, five battleships that the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy are allowed, the Japanese are only allowed three. And so they, they look for ways in which to overcome this, this uh, numerical efficiency. And one of the things that they concentrate on is, aha, we can figure out, uh, we can use technological solutions to address this. And one of the technological solutions they hit on is a very powerful and very long-range torpedo, the Type 93. It uses um, oxygen as its, uh, in, instead of air, um, to burn its fuel. And that gives it an extremely long range. It, it has a very powerful warhead. And their theory is, they, they have two theories for using this. One is, if there's an opposing fleet 
coming toward us or you know advancing into a, um, our area of the ocean, we will try to attack it at night, uh, a surprise attack at night, um, not from really long range, but but you know we will we will stay a little bit more distant than they expect and rely on on the long range of our torpedoes. So we'll try to do this stealthily at night, uh, and then during the day, if there is a major action between battle lines, we will fire these torpedoes from long range uh, to surprise the enemy at, at distances from which they would not anticipate a torpedo attack. And the first of those is becomes a pattern that they can employ in, in the fighting in the Solomons. And yes, uh, they don't have a radar that is as uh, sophisticated. They don't develop the kinds of procedures to use it, but they do have, um, they have trained very extensively to fight at night. They have very good night vision devices, uh, very experienced lookouts. And many times, particularly if the moon is up in these night battles, they are able to sight uh, the Allied ships before U.S. Navy radar makes, makes sense of them or, or notices that they're there. Uh, and they capitalize on that advantage. And many times they capitalize on that advantage with torpedoes. Um, right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a weapon you can just sort of fire and forget it. Now, they're not guided torpedoes at the time, right? So they, they, they just go straight ahead. They go where you pointed them. But as long as the opposing line doesn't maneuver, um, which, you know, they have a greater chance of that because of the high speed of their torpedoes, uh, they can inflict terrible damage. And they, and they do on a regular basis. Right. Right. So, so the other question I've got here is how does the, the in practice, so we're developing this doctrine, um, for, particularly around the, uh, the, the combat information center, how does it actually happen? Are they, are they like flying people back to like Naval college and like <laughs> sheet dumping? Like, like how does that, that process of indoctrination work? I mean, just... the, the movement of people is very important. So the same month that uh, November, 1942, that Nimitz issues this instruction about, you know, Every ship of the fleet will create this combat operations or combat information center. One of the ships in one of the battles off Guadalcanal, um, the uh, captain and his executive officer, it's a, it's, it's a destroyer. They've worked out sort of a rudimentary combat information center. And um, Wiley is the, is the name of the, the executive officer. And, and he basically tries to make sense of everything himself. He stands with one foot inside uh, the radar room so he can see uh, a radar display. He's got his other foot. Um, in the spot where he can, you know, verbally issue uh, commands to the bridge and others, and he helps that ship navigate through the battle unscathed. And this goes into the action reports. And then when that happens, the people back at Pearl Harbor who are thinking, "How are we going to create combat information centers?" They they notice and they say, "Ha, you, Wiley, come back, <laughs> come back here, uh, come out of the combat area. You've got some great ideas. Let's use you to help." establish one of these schools and educate others, right? So, so the, the action reports become a mechanism to highlight uh, not only effective practices, but also people who have introduced those practices. And sometimes they get, they, they get handpicked and, and, and moved around. And the other thing that I think is interesting about this is there are, there are conferences that are regularly occurring between the Atlantic fleet and the, and the Pacific fleet. The U.S. Navy's organization at this time keeps them somewhat, somewhat separate. They have different command structures, but they recognize they have a similar challenge. Now, in the Pacific, it's, it's, it's fighting the, the Imperial Japanese Navy. In the Atlantic, it's much more about fighting German U-boats. Uh, but both of these have a requirement for being able to make sense of uh, emergent information rapidly and, and in an effective way and do it, it, it not just within a ship, but within a formation. 
a group of ships. And so there are CIC conferences that bring groups from those different fleets together to talk about, well, what are you doing? How are you solving this problem? And, and so there's, there's an exchange of information on a regular basis to try to advance knowledge across both fleets, across the entire fleet. Right. So you're kind of creating, they're creating like sense making and knowledge sharing mm-hmm. for us, and, right? Yeah. And, and what I think is really interesting. Now we could, we could think about that and say, ah, oh, wow, they got it right, you know, in the second world war in the early 1940s. If you look at the immediate world post world war one period, one of the things the U.S. Navy does is they, recognize, oh, the experience of fighting the German U-boats in that war was, was challenging. We learned a lot. We need to capture some of the lesson. And they've created, at that point, sort of the hotbeds of knowledge are um, the Naval War College in Newport. Then there is a, uh, an Atlantic Fleet Destroyer Command on the East Coast. And in San Diego, there is a, a Pacific Fleet Destroyer Command. And these three groups regularly exchange information. I can't, I don't know if they had I suspect they got together, but I can't remember off the top of my head if they had any conference that officially brought them all together. But they are exploring different subjects, regularly exchanging information and, and coalescing that into um, the first destroyer-based uh, doctrinal manuals of the U.S. Navy that come out, um, I think it's 1921, that's issued. And so they're going back to a model that some of these officers who are now at the highest levels of command would have been familiar with or would have seen. Uh, when they were younger. And I think that is something that we often overlook is how these habits get inculcated. You know, you, you mm. see that as, as, uh, as you know, real, early on in your career and you go back to, to the pattern because you felt it was successful. Right. So in that period of reflection, they, they kind of clock this need to be able to adapt more effectively and learn as they were fighting, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the context for it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, the media thought that did these did these like educational centers become targets? I mean, did the allies, <laughs> not the allies, sorry, the enemy, you know, uh, caught on to this? Well, the by this time, so this will be nineteen nineteen forty three. The Japanese have really lost the ability to to be able to attack a place like Pearl Harbor, a place like Hawaii. I mean, it, it, there are going to be. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I mean, they have the capability for some sort of long-range pinprick kind of attack. I mean, they, they did produce these balloon bombs that would float across the Pacific and land in the, in the Pacific Northwest. So, I mean, to say that they have no ability would, would probably be, be wrong, but, but no sort of systematic ability. There's not going to be another Pearl Harbor attack by, by 1943. They are too focused on trying to resist the, the Allied advance in, in the South and Southwest Pacific at that point. Um, and, and the Germans, aside from you know submarine patrols along the eastern U.S. coast, don't have the ability for some sort of uh, raid like that either. Right. And and the term that came to mind, uh, you may be familiar with this with, with Nicholas Nassim Taleb, anti-fragile, right? Like if you damage something, an organism, um, to an extent that it's still it's still alive or it still it survives. <laughs> But it, uh, but it adapts as a result of that damage to such that it actually becomes stronger, right? The sort of post-traumatic growth idea, right? And I wondered mm-hmm. to what extent that was true in the Solomon Islands. If it, it almost like they didn't, they either need to wipe them out, <laughs> <laughs> right? To, to, but the fact that they they did enough damage 
but left them, uh, you know, still operational and able to learn from it was, uh, you know, was an example of anti-fragility on the part of the U.S. Navy. It just came to mind. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a valuable a valuable take. I struggle to tease out the difference in my own head between what I would call resilience and and, and anti-fragility. I, I think there's a there's there's a strong strong overlap there, but I, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Taleb's point. And I, I think you could argue that this is an example uh, of, of that sort of thing. Um, but w- what I think is very interesting is, is the U.S. Navy seems to be building this capability up, right? It's not, it's not something that just, they just ha- have. It, it's, it's consciously created um, in, the, in the years prior. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis in, in the interwar years on your um, I forget exactly how they put it, but some of the officers talk about, you know, our greatest strength is, is sort of the intelligence. And today we might say adaptability because that's the context that they're using it in uh, of our of our officers. You know, we can think we can think on our feet. We need to be able to train people to think on their feet. Exercises are designed to encourage that. Right. So not a rope problem, but more of a an emerging sequence of challenges that officers have to um, overcome. And so they're trying to build that talent up and, and they're, they consciously think that if they can do that, then they'll have an advantage. And I, and I think it's because they have a, uh, they recognize that war is going to be like that. Like it's not, it's not going to be predictable. We'll have, they assume there's going to be a war in the Pacific against Japan. So there's going to be sort of this overarching strategy, right? We will somehow advance across the Pacific, bring the war to Japanese shores and then force them to surrender. Now, Beyond that, it does get a little bit more specific, but all of that is debatable through through the years. Uh, but to do that, they recognize well we're gonna we're gonna have to be able to overcome challenges that are gonna emerge that we don't anticipate. And you see that repeatedly. So you see that with doctrine, they overcome some of the doctrinal challenges. Things don't work in the first year of war. Uh, a big unanticipated challenge has to do with logistics. There's a number of different books that have been written that investigate uh, the development of underway replenishment and, and effective logistic practices in the Pacific. Um, the Navy got, I think, a less effective handle on that prior, prior to the war. Uh, but the, the Central Pacific advance that starts in late 1943 um, through um, like the... Um, the Marshall and Mariana Islands, that, that would not have been possible without, without that sort of logistical support. And it's something that gets built primarily during the war. I mean, there's some thought about it beforehand, but, uh, but it emerges. Right, right. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting to pick up on was, the, again, with this, these combat uh, information centers, is that they, they develop this code to speak to each other, right? That's one of the things that gets standardized as well. It's not just like, developing specific doctrines for types of ships it's also this language between them yes yes that's so important and and i think unless you sort of delve into the details of this it's it's easy to dismiss like you you and i are exchanging a lot of complex ideas and doing it very quickly um but there you know time is even more essential you you can't have confusion and the circuits uh you know the radio circuits aboard a ship uh, can become clogged very quickly because it's not just two-way, like between you and I now, it, it may be four or five-way. So if you're going to get on the circuit, you have to convey information very quickly, very precisely. You don't want to have to repeat it. And and so there's language 
that they develop. It's it's a it's an extension of an existing language. You know, how do you say ranges? There's a very particular way to talk about ranges. There's a very particular way to talk about a radar contact, right? Is it a surface radar contact or an aerial radar contact? Different languages for the two, um, and all of that. And it has to be it has to be developed because initially it's a little bit more fluid, particularly when it comes to radar. Uh, there's an example I, I think I said it in the book where during one of the um, battles, uh, one of the ships refers to a surface radar contact as a bogey, and other ships that hear that think they're it's talking about uh, an aerial contact because for them an aerial a bogey meant an airplane, um, not. <laughs> not a surface ship. It's a confusion immediately. Um, and then there are, there are other terms that are sufficiently imprecise uh, that also cause some confusion. Right. The use of Roger. What was that? I can't remember the precise oh, yes. phrase, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so this is, this is actually the same battle. Uh, it's the Battle of Cape Esperance and, and um, uh, Rear Admiral Norman Scott is commanding the American, the American group of ships. And uh, he has not noticed because he's on a, a a properly equipped flagship, but it doesn't have the most sophisticated radars, a cruiser of San Francisco. So he hasn't fully become aware of the fact that, that there's a Japanese formation that's bearing down on him. The Japanese have not sighted the American ships yet or, or have not recognized them as enemy yet. And the gunners and the captain of cruiser Helena, some distance farther back, knows what's going on, sees the Japanese ships, the gunners have them in, in their sights. And so at the time, Roger had two meetings. It was a code word for opening fire. And it was also a way that you could acknowledge the receipt of a message. So um, the captain of Helena sends to Scott, sends to San Francisco, uh, essentially, hey, can I open fire? But the way they say it is, you know, interrogatory Roger. They're basically, I'm asking for permission to open fire. That's what that means. That's what that means to them. Or San Francisco. Radio operators receive it and they want to send back message received. So they send back Roger and that comes back to Elena and they're like, we got permission, open up. <laughs> and they do. And so from the back of the American line, these cruisers begin to open fire. And, you know, because the gunners in San Francisco also have seen these targets and are also ready to open fire, they start shooting too, because well, the, the, then the ship next to us started shooting. So let's get going. Um, and Scott is thrown for a loop. What is going on? I didn't give permission to open fire. Well, you did. <laughs> you didn't mean to, but your your command system did. Uh, so that's the kind of confusion. Uh, and and uh, you can imagine, right? So Scott, is he knows there are contacts out there. He thinks they might be some of his own ships because of the formation that they just went through. He's not sure where some of his destroyers are. So he's concerned. He's, they're shooting at each other. Meanwhile, his, his subordinates know what's going on. They, they feel on top of it and, and they're on target. But that kind of confusion uh, happens again and again until. Um, well, go on, sorry. Oh, I was going to say until, until you get more effective ways of dealing with this information, more effective ways to communicate. And, and it, formation commanders have the ability to make sense much more rapidly. They're not as confused before. Right, right. But, yeah, I was going to ask. Did, so did did that result in them shooting each other? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> um, so it's difficult without a visual, but um, for those who, who can watch, uh, Scott's formation was going like this, and then it turned around, and the Japanese were coming this way. And uh, some of his destroyers 
got caught in between the two lines of ships and some of them were hit by by both sides um destroyer Fahrenheit, for example i don't think any japanese ships actually shot it um but it has uh or got holes in it from american shells and you could tell that's what it was because it was going this way and the americans were over here and the holes are on mm. this side of the ship yeah right um so it's it's captain you know figured out how to get out of that uh fast enough before the damage was too severe but at the same time they were more more american shells hit japanese ships than american ones so yeah it seemed the appropriate moment to open fire right right and I'm just, I just want to make sure I, I know this is, I, I, but I've got a loop in my head now. So the phrase was um, interregnum something. What was it? Interregnum something, Roger? Um, inter- interrogatory. So interrogatory. I'm asking a question, Roger, you know, can I open fire is essentially what it means. Can I open fire, Roger? Like, yes, question mark. And right. he says, Roger, but isn't that a yes coming back? Like, how is that not a yes? Well, that was intended to be message received and understood. So, oh, Roger, I see. I, Roger, I got your message, but exactly. I'm not going to give you a yes or no yet. Yeah, exactly. It okay, was right. Roger in terms of, I got your message. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But because the word that comes back is Roger, which is also, it means I got your message. Thank you. It also means open fire. <laughs> they chose to interpret it the way naturally, I think, given their context. You know, they were asking, can I open fire? They got open fire back. Off they go. Right, right. But what, I guess what surprised me, why, why wasn't that happening all the time? Because presumably that was quite a, like a common thing. Or it- I, I doubt that uh, that specific set of circumstances uh, evolved that way. I mean, I think it's odd how the Helena crew asked to open fire. I think that that permission or or that phrasing um, didn't get used very often, right? Because you can you can you know Roger is is a it's it's a code word for opening fire. Uh, it works, or you can see how it might have worked better if you're doing signal flags. So there's a Roger signal flag, right? So you could right. raise it up, and then when it comes time to execute, you would lower it. Uh, so they're they're using language that predates the radios that they're using and in the radios it's more common to you know say you know can we open fire you actually use those kinds of those kinds of words rather than the code words and that's the that's where the the, i think the some of the confusion and the friction comes they're in this sort of intermediate zone because um the the tbs radio set the ultra high frequency radio set um to communicate between ships was relatively new and they were working out procedures for using it. So it offers this capability of really, you know, talking back and forth like you and I are, um, exchanging information rapidly over the radio waves, which they didn't have before and had to be more coded. And so now um, you're- uh, the, the codes that helped them in the past was that without tripping them up, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could say, yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, I, de- I definitely want to get to like, because I know your experience yeah, yeah, uh, with Exceler, um right so you're a fellow mm-hmm. um yes. and you're working with organizations and, and yeah i think there will be listeners who, who want to you know understand some of the ways you've sort of taken this wisdom into organizations but before we get there i just wanted to touch on the last part of the book when you start to get into this idea again when we're talking about doctrine of uh, it being developed in the context of of transcendental 
knowledge. And I have to admit, I sort of skimmed these last four few pages before we got onto the call. But I, I wanted to just to touch on that because you, you put it in sort of an historical context right at the end. And I wonder if we could explore that a bit. Oh, yes. You're talking about like the, axi- the axial age and, age and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I like how I, I, I did this. Um, the, the, so, so this is getting back to, to Mahan, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan is often thought of as sort of the, uh, the primal theorist or the father of, of, uh, American sea power or American sea power theory. And he's got a s- strong influence here. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate is Mahan is often associated with, with decisive battle doctrine. It is something that he cared about, but what I think his influence was uh, more important for, at least in the context of the U.S. Navy, is, is establishing this, this idea that there are underpinning principles of, of naval, naval warfare. Um, there are these long, enduring ideas, and he used historical study to try to draw them out. So he, he looks at, uh, he, he's, he's famous for his work the influence of sea power upon history and the other things that, that, that derive from it. And he looks at the rise of Great Britain as, as a naval power in, in those works. And he uses it to tease out these principles. And the theory is that th- these are some core principles. If we understand them, then uh, we'll be in better shape, but we need to know how to interpret them to context. So the naval officer in man's thinking is sort of this bridge between these transcendental principles and context. And so the study of history is important because we can see how these principles have been applied before. And then we want to avoid rote application of the principles in the future. So you need to understand them. You need to understand that context. You need to bring that understanding to future contexts and use your knowledge to figure out how to, how to draw it together. Uh, that, that is, is the idea. Uh, and I'm sure that there are people who've studied Mahan who are going to look at me and go, what? No, he's all about decisive battle and this stuff and bring the fleets together and never divide the fleet and those kind of things. So I, I try to go a little bit farther and, and I think do Mahan a little bit more, more justice than, than he often, he often gets. Um, but there will probably be people who disagree with that point. Right. Okay. But no, but I, I think it, I think the reason perhaps I, you know, intuitive that we might want to go there is because I think there's a direct parallel. And you, again, you touch on it towards the end of the book about, in our sort of agile world and how to build the adaptive organization, the agile organization, which of course is a, a big concern for a lot of companies right now, is that there tends to be uh, this desire to jump straight, I suppose, to jump straight to the the instruction manual, like, you know, how yes. do I implement Scrum or, you know, yes. how do I do yeah. uh, Lean or whatever it might be with, uh, with perhaps less of an, uh, an appetite to explore the history of the principles and where they come from and, and the broader context. Um, and sometimes we get, you know, and there's another guy I could just think of, Dan North, who's a big thinker in the agile space, who's been on the show. And he talks about how a lot of these agile schools almost become like religions and the people mm-hmm. adhere to these religions based on, if you like, the instructions, you know, what, what are the practices that we must subscribe to and, uh, engage in in order to be a sort of valid congregational member of this religion, right? Uh, without, you know, referring back to the principles and the philosophy behind it all. And, um, you know, I think you were touching on it there that perhaps something that was the, that perhaps the US Navy did well, right? They sort of went 
through Nimitz, perhaps they sort of allowed themselves to go back to something more transcendent, more of the sort of essence of the principles and allowed to the, for the doctrine to evolve in the context. I, I think that's, that's a wonderful point. I, I cannot help but be amused when you uh, related agile to, to religion. Um, there's a comparison I make as, as well. I, I sometimes joke that the best preparation I had to work in the agile space as we understand it today was, was to study religions um, <laughs> and to learn how, how uh, people through time and history have taken uh, religious ideas and then and codified them in, in ways that, that create these, these structures that are, more, that are more rigid and arguably less true to some of the um, aspirational ideas that, that were at the core of that religion when it was introduced or when it was founded. And I think we run into the same sort of problem with, with Agile. Uh, I, I agree completely. It, it uh, is easy um, to get to a point where, well, we want to know how to do it and we want to know how to do it right. We want, if not the instruction manual, then at least the, the, the guidebook, the pathway that is going to get us to where we want to go. And easily. And without as much uh, effort, right? It, it, this is logical from an organizational standpoint because you only have so much time, energy, uh, and capacity, and, and you want to get to where you want to go. You want to get there as efficiently and effectively as possible. And I think people who work in the agile space often run up against this, you know, because they know, well, it's not quite that easy. I can't just give you an instruction manual. Um, I can't just tell you to do Scrum. We have to understand what's the context, where are we coming from? What are your objectives? We have to marry these things together. And where I feel like I've had the most success is, is where I take an approach that is similar to what I was describing with, with Mahan. Keep these ideas in mind, these principles, these concepts. But what I can bring uh, as someone who works as, uh, in organizations is I can help you tease out which of these principles are most important at, at the time to where you want to go, given your existing context. And I think that's what good agile work in the modern era does, understands some of the foundational principles or concepts, whether we call these agile or lean or, or something else, complexity informed ideas, and figure out, help an organization figure out how to apply them into, into their context. Uh, I think we run into a lot of problems if we try to shortcut that. And instead, just say, well, here's the formula. Let's apply it. Uh, yeah. Because that often looks great from a certain level of an organization, often a higher level, sometimes a lower level, but often a higher level. And uh, then at the lower level, it's like, this doesn't work. This doesn't apply to our context. Why are we doing this? And it just, it breeds a lack of enthusiasm, friction, um, and um, doesn't, doesn't move forward quite, quite as well. Right. And you could argue that's exactly what the US Navy did at the start of that war for the, for the Solomon Islands or the battle for the Solomon Islands is right. They just, they came in with their doctrine that it was going to work, but perhaps we could say they failed fast and they recognized quite quickly that they, uh, <laughs> they needed to do something different. Is that a stretch? It's a little bit of a stretch, but, but there's some truth to it, right? There is failure there. Um, I, and I think what I would, what I think is a little bit flawed in that, in that narrative is that there wasn't a cohesive formula at the beginning, right? This wasn't sort of, right. this, here's, here's the plan we're going to follow. Instead, it was, we're going to come into this with what we know and we, we think it's going to work. Oh, gee, it doesn't. Okay. Now, now how do we, how do we, how do we make this better? How do we, how do we fix? Um, but it's, I think they're faster to react to that, to that learning. They're fact, faster to react to it because there is the grounding in the principles, not necessarily the grounding in the rope, in the rope procedures. And this is a place 
where it could effectively be contrasted with the primary opponent, the, the Imperial Japanese Navy, who has focused on less principles. Like they're influenced by, by Mahan very much as well. You know, he's translated into the Japanese, but oh, that's they, interesting. <laughs> they're reading oh, the yeah. same books. <laughs> same books, uh, but translated. And also they gravitate less toward the principles and more toward the decisive battle idea. Now, some of this is informed by their experience, right? They win the war with China through a decisive battle. They win the war with Russia in 1905 through a decisive battle. So they're focused on a decisive battle. And that informs how they approach the fighting in, in the Solomons. They know it's not the decisive battle. So they don't, they, they hold back a little bit. And um, whereas Nimitz is, uh, he's much more, you know, all in more of like a, a gambler. I know this is, this is important. We have to win. So everything, everything's on the table. Um, Japanese hold back a little bit more uh, waiting for the decisive battle uh, because that is what their plan is centered around. Um, and I think that inhibits, inhibits the, their ability to recognize the importance of that fighting and what ultimately it's going to, it's going to do to them because it, it, it treats their forces enough that then they get to a point where a decisive battle becomes much more challenging to win. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was part of the initial deck run is, is act aggressively, right? That was part of the, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. The, so the doctrine initially, the, the, I like to think about the, it's not doctrine in the sense of this, the shared collaborative understanding that gets developed more doctrine in terms of what is sort of the, the foundational principles of, of, of battle tactics that we're going to employ. And I call those heuristics after the, the work of Daniel Kahneman um, sort of uh, decision, uh, subconscious decision criteria and uh, act aggressively is one. Um, What's the other one? Attack effectively first, which I borrow from. Yeah, attack, uh, yeah, attack effectively. With, Hughes, with firepower, with, right? Yeah. Often yeah. with guns, but, but generally okay. attack effectively first. It, it applies to, to airplanes very much as well. And then uh, the third one is decentralized uh, doctrinal development or decentralized action um, to take advantage of fleeting opportunities in, in battle. And you can see that through the interwar period and then, and then in wartime as well. But that act aggressively. Now, you could argue that that is a standard approach for, for militaries across the world, right? <laughs> right? It's, it's a dynamic, challenging situation, and you have to impose your will on the, on the enemy. Uh, but the, the way the, the Navy emphasized that, I think, is, is very important. Because it, to the point of, um, let's, not, let's not reflect back, let's not think too much, just act. And then from that, we will see what, what emerges, uh, and, then we can, and then we can act again. Yeah, but it's very much it. But it is it is paired with this act, but then learn from it, right? But then write it up, then create the action report, send it back to this intelligence, you know, the, these this naval college, right? That's that's very important. And the reason I emphasise it is because it's something I see, you know, a lot of in the organisations that I work who are perhaps you could say struggling to become more agile. Is they're very good at the acting part. <laughs> they're very good at getting mm. on with it. That's very you know the, the sort of busyness addiction is sort of prevalent across, you know, well, reality and generally certainly in, in corporate life. And um, but the, but that but that stop and reflect and write the report and sit down and see what worked and didn't. That's much harder and to inculcate. I find. I think you're right. I'm really glad you said that because one of the things that we can see from from the Navy's experience. Um, is there's the sort of layers of reflection 
right? I talked about the feedback loop that is happening amongst captains in the theater, but then there's a broader uh, feedback loop. So there's, there's layers to this. In many of the agile organizations that I've worked with or organizations that are trying to become agile, the, the, there are some of those layers of reflection aren't necessarily interlinked effectively. Well, or even there, right? <laughs> well, or even there. Yes, absolutely. Right, right. Oh, retrospectives are something the team does. They get to the end of their sprint and they, they, they do a retrospective and then they learn. The rest of us, we don't have to do that. <laughs> um, and, and I saw a valuable tweet the other day that it mirrors something that um, some colleagues of mine and I did. Like we had a, a collection of teams. So it was a program, not just, not just teams. And, and we had, uh, we created a board for experimentation, different things that different teams are trying uh, in a shared space. So everyone could see, you know, what one team is trying and what, um, whether or not they felt, felt it was successful. Uh, once they got to the end of their their experiment, and that was great because it it shared information across the program. You know, different teams could see what their colleagues were doing, and so that was a very effective way for sort of creating another level of feedback loop to to spread effective practice around more rapidly. Really liked that. Um, so when when organizations can can have more time to to reflect or more capacity, it doesn't necessarily just have to be time. I think that's really that's really important. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, well, and they, and they never have time. There's never any time to have a retrospective. <laughs> it's the choice to create that, create the time. It's the choice to commit to it, isn't it? it that's really yeah. what it's about. Yeah, there's, is. There, there, there is never a good time to sit around <laughs> and reflect. And I think part of the reason is you know you don't want to face your failure. You don't, and I think that's what perhaps something that military cultures are very good at. You know, is encouraging people to face face failure, right? Face face it and be okay with it and that you know that that's certainly been my experience just sort of not that i've ever been in any kind of military context, but just knowing a few people you know they should be quite open about oh yeah we fucked that up or we screwed that up or you know that happened you know it's just it seems to be just part of the culture right mm -hmm. well i think i think it has to be you know if you can't do that then um well the, the costs are quite high i mean it's different than sort of blowing a, a a release i used to I have a colleague who we would um we were tracking vehicles that that did deliveries to to various localities and you know if, if one of those screws up right somebody doesn't get their stuff on time well okay that's a, that's a problem right but um if if you're like routing ambulances and and you mess and you get that wrong somebody might not get to the hospital in time uh, and uh, so the costs of that were uh, were a lot higher so yeah so perhaps to something it's adaptive to the to the cost of the failures you know i can see that yeah yeah um so yeah so so we've, we've i guess we've touched touched on some of the aspects and how this relates to specifically organizations working in agility is there are there any other common threads that you tend to find sort of transmute quite easily into corporate context well the one that i really wish translated more effectively but it's very hard to find an organization that has the patience for this kind of thing is the idea of parallel experimentation um you know, and I, and I refer back to, to how that is a, a part of a complex domain or guidance for the complex domain with the Kinevin framework. Um, probes, a lot of, I, I struggle to get organizations to think about that. Sometimes in a product development context, uh, that will work because there's a recognition that there's uncertainty about what the best fit is going to be. Uh, but getting people out of the sort of linear assumption of, well, you know, it, it, because I think a lot of people, especially if they've got an engineering background, they come to it from a scientific context, right? Well, oh, well, we want to 
do controlled experimentation. So we'll hold various variables constant. We'll change one thing at a time. And the idea of running like five parallel probes to just get a better sense of, you know, how does this thing actually react is, is alien. Uh, so, I mean, you asked for parallels <laughs> and I'm worried yeah. I'm going the opposite direction. This no, but, it, but it's good. And it, it just, it reminds me of the, the first part of the book, which we haven't really touched on when you talk about the sort of professionalization of the Navy and the fact that we're taking these, we're merging into the sort of engineer class and the officer class, and making everybody effectively into like engineering soldiers or something. And, but there's <laughs> this profession, yeah, this professionalization of it. But it's interesting that, you know, I tend to get this idea in my head that the kind of engineering mindset is like the problem. And that's the thing that leads to us thinking, looking at everything as a machine and, and getting entrenched in this sort of linear way of thinking. But of course, what's interesting in the case of the Navy is that they're, they're very happy, you know, just de facto to think in terms of multiple probes and complex environments and, you know, enabling constraints, right? Not that they're explicitly using those concepts and language, but they are operating in that way, right? And, and they ha all have engineering backgrounds. Yeah. And, and that's something that I haven't fully reconciled because I have, I have a, a disposition very similar to yours, right? The, the engineering mindset is kind of the problem. The, the, this idea that we can just decompose a problem into its component pieces is if it's complex, we can't do that. It's the relationship between its pieces that really brings the essence of whatever that, whatever it is, whether it's a problem or a challenge or a system. Um, and they seem to have been quite comfortable with that. And I'm not sure what it is about the education that they received, you know, a little over a century ago compared to what we do now that, that allow that, that difference, but it's, it's there. It's very real. Um, I think part of it may have been what they get exposed to as, as junior officers, because, uh, you know, they'll graduate from the Naval Academy, uh, in, in the United States, and then they will be put aboard ship and they'll, they'll have some position of, of responsibility. Often these, these junior officers were, you know, gun captains responsible for a, for a turret aboard a ship or some other, uh, small department. And when they come to that, they lack a lot of context and very quickly, they have to rely on the senior enlisted sailors who have been part of that environment for a long time, who know all the nuances and all the context about how this works. So they have to, they have this authority, they have this responsibility. They have to lead with a certain amount of humility because if, you know, if they piss those senior enlisted men off, if they get them upset, they're not going to be able to achieve their end. They have to come to their leadership in a way that respects the knowledge that those, um, their subordinates who know more than they do bring. And I think that that might have been something that forced them to think about challenge of human relationships in a context of engineering, right? So I understand the theories behind how this thing fits together, but you know, this senior chief over here, he's been here for 10 years and he knows how it all really works. He knows like sort of where the flaws in the system are. Uh, he knows where the teething troubles are. He knows how to lubricate everything to make sure that it works. And, and I've got to command through him. Um, so I've got to develop a sense of how do I, how do I navigate these, these personal relationships in order to accomplish my, my goals and, and, and command well. I don't know, but that's, that's a theory that I have. But that is something that made them very aware of the importance of human relationships and human dynamics to making their commands work. Yeah. And I also wonder if, you know, that very rigid engineering mindset, in some senses, you, you kind of have the luxury to apply it when you're thinking about organizations 
because you can set up a like a linear, you know, you can you can view your organization as, as a machine and inputs and outputs. You can set up a program of activities, you know, with the intention of reaching some outcome. And um and what happens, like we know from the statistics, what is it, sixty percent of projects fail or whatever, right? And so so the, you know, that the whole kind of except for you like management class, um, with this engineering mindset, um, is is sort of hopeless, right? I mean, it's just failing um, at, 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 you know, a mind-blowing de- degree, but everyone keeps their jobs. And, and every, you know, it, it's not <laughs> like it's, it's almost like there's this sort of corporate denial that this is what happens, right? That we just fail almost every time we try and do, <laughs> not quite, but, a, 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 you know, a large portion of what we try and do um, as managers, as executives, when it comes to, let's say, changing organizations, we fail at. And it, it kind of doesn't matter, whereas on a ship, it does matter, right? You know, it, you couldn't get away with those levels of failure rates in a military context. No, no, you can't. Uh, and and the, so there's a, I mean, what I was thinking when you were talking is there's, there's a feedback loop. And, and the, the Navy is under pressure in this, in this time frame because uh, they finally get to uh, a, a promotional approach that is going to reward good behavior. You know, so the best are going to be promoted previously, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, naval officers would get, would just get promoted in order no matter what, right? Where, wherever you graduate uh, from Naval Academy, that gives you your number and your numbers just advance no matter how well you do, as long as you don't really screw things up. Uh, But then in the early 20th century, they change to a promotional system that is very much based on merit and it's very visible right? How well you do uh, is visible. And that, so there's an incentive to do well. There's an incentive to figure out how to be uh, effective with your own ship. And then after your ship, effective with the formation and and other things. Uh, So they've got feedback loops that encourage that more effective behavior, greater than 60% success. Uh, (laughs) And I think you're speaking to a point that, that, that is a Real big challenge in business today is there are a lot of these failures, but oftentimes there isn't a lot of consequence for it. Uh, right. I mean, they- yeah. I mean, I know a guy who is now extremely senior CTO, and I love the guy. Um, he's failed on practically every large program he's ever sort of sponsored. Um, and it made no difference to his career, you know, p- because he's a brilliant political operator and he's a you know, very bright mind and he's an inspiring leader and all the rest of it. But in terms of his track record of programs that he's been involved with it's you know it's pretty much consistent with the statistic i just mentioned and that's true of many of us right i mean i conclude myself you know the number of programs i've worked on that's fat it's not like it, it's a it's endemic um you know i think i think that's the reality uh but the consequences are fairly low yeah they are and that's and that's really interesting um it, but i think it, it 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 makes it harder to try to figure out how to do things better i mean we're always searching for how to things, do things better. But what I mean is it, it, it makes it, uh, it makes it easier to do sort of the safe, the, the, the safe solution. We were talking earlier about agile as a religion and, and, you know, do you adhere to the principles and try to bring those to context or do you grab something off the shelf that is, that is an approach that's going to work. Um, and if there aren't that many consequences for failure, and if the principles are very hard sell because it takes longer or it, it, it requires more effort, well, then why not grab the solution off the shelf and try that? And, you know, if it doesn't work, well, 
you'll probably fail up anyway. So no harm. <laughs> failing up. That's right. That's the, that the capsize you failing and, up. And, and, and that's kind of a cynical view. Uh, but I do think that that sort of thing happens. I mean, I don't think it's unjustified. No, I don't. I, yeah. I mean, it seems to be, yeah, again, I, because, because what I, I think one's ability to um, deliver projects effectively is only part of your success criteria and a bit when you get into very large corporations a, a you know a much bigger component is is political skill mm-hmm. um and uh you know the ability to sort of manage you know interactions and perceptions and, and and so on and it's 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 relational ability i think it becomes um you know a big part of it and in, interestingly ralph stacy is another complexity thing it, it talks about that right you know that 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 becomes so important in complex human environments is it's it's other factors are at play um, so yes, it's, um, it's interesting to reflect on that. But the other thing I will just say is that agile, it does appear that some of the statistics I've seen that these agile approaches are more successful. Um, and that is one of the reasons I advocate it, you know, even if it, it, you know, regardless of that argument about, are we sometimes applying these approaches too prescriptively, it's still in the aggregate, a more successful strategy to take that approach to complex projects. Yeah, it certainly has been in my experience. Uh, I remember bringing uh, Agile to, uh, you know, not as a consultant, but as a as a as a leader and as a manager to an organization that I worked with, and it it great, it's <laughs> so much better, um, I thought, than what we were doing before. Uh, so I do think that, it, you know, there it, it does have its failures as well. It, it's, it doesn't always succeed, but um, it makes the opportunities for improvement a lot more visible. And I think that's 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 great. It creates the kind of feedback loops that that organizations need to try to get better. And yeah, I, I mean, I've made a career out of it, so I must have some faith in it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think I think we're still, you know, and I think we're still learning. I mean, I think, uh, uh, and it's interesting now for me, and, and perhaps by both of us, have sort of latched onto this complexity thinking. It's it's it feels like it's a deepening of the understanding and the the, the kind of context for this. Uh, for this agile way of working, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I thought it was uh, a wonderful frame for looking at what the Navy was doing in the early the early 20th century. I mean, I have, the, the book draws on a series of articles that I had published in prior years, and I was thinking about how to tie them all together. And as I became more familiar with uh, complexity thinking, Kinevin, it was like, wow, this is this is the theme that that um, provides a way of looking at this that not only ties it all together, but is it gives some very deep explanations for how some of this stuff works. And I'm just glad that other people have read the book and sort of reacted the same way. I mean, I felt a little bit like going out on a limb. It's like uh, I don't know that anybody's done this before. Apply complexity theory to naval history, mm. uh, but it worked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. no, it's a it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Um, have we missed anything? Is there, is there a question or a topic you would have thought I might have picked up on that we haven't, haven't touched on? I don't think, well, one thing, one thing I do want to, I do want to stress that we haven't spent as much time about, but I do like to emphasize is we talked a lot about the, the wartime and we talked about the, sort of the changing in the officer promotion approach and how they became engineering officers. But one thing that we haven't spent as much time on is in between the world wars, the Navy, I think developed a, a real structure uh, for learning that was influential when when World War II came about. We talked about action reports uh, and these feedback loops, 
And that begins, it really begins in the early 1920s uh, when the Navy introduced something that they, um, this uh, cycle, planning cycle, uh, which was an annual feedback loop. And it culminated in these large exercises uh, every year called fleet problems. And I think that's important for, for readers to understand that the learning that, that Navy takes advantage of in, in World War II is established by these mechanisms that are created and introduced and then fostered and refined years before. So it's not just like there's a switch that gets flipped. Uh, it's years of preparation behind it. Right. Yeah. And, I, and again, I think that is a parallel on some of the more uh, advanced, you might say, Um you said term with caution, but like uh, <laughs> agile organizations will tend to have those kind of annual. So, so this, this fact, those repeated patterns, right? You've got the, the scrum team perhaps having a retrospect every couple of weeks. And maybe there's a, there's a, there's a broader unit that's having reflecting perhaps with a, with a slightly longer cadence. But then the organization itself might every six months or a year have like these mass participation events where the, you're really, um, tapping into what's emerging and what's being learned and what could be doing different, what we could be doing differently as an organization. Right. Right. And it's got a, a fractal scale to it. It's not yeah. like yeah. to yeah. say that. Um, but yeah, that just, I, don't, I sometimes say that word because I'm not sure everybody understands it, but yeah, repeated <laughs> patterns, right. At different <laughs> scales. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Self-similar patterns at, at different scales. Um, and I think that that is a nice model uh, to think about as we think about how organizations could do things better. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much, Trent. Uh, I'll flash the book up again for those uh, for those uh, watching here. Uh, Learning War. There it is. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. How long did it take you to write? I mean, this is, I, I've never written a book. I'm always in awe of anybody who writes just a book. I'm just like, how on earth? Well, there, there are different answers to that question. Um, if you the, sort of the long answer looks at when did I start the research that that really in earnest that led into it, and that was um, sort of late 1990s. So that would be oh, wow years if you want to factor it that way. If, if you want to think about it in terms of how long did it take to sort of sit down, commit to it, and actually uh, come out with a book on the other side, that um, I think that's about four, three or four. Three or four years. And any, um, any tips for budding writers out there? What, were you getting up at 5 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> Writing before anyone lots, gets up? Lot, not, not at 5, 5 a.m., but lots of, lots of late nights and lots, lots of weekends. Oh, late nights and weekends, um, right. I find that it's really valuable to try to compartmentalize things. Uh, I've gotten some positive feedback about the the book. The chapters are divided into sections. So there's sort of a mm. modular nature to it. I tried to uh, bring uh, like an iterative and incremental approach to it, thinking about agile uh, concepts so that it was, it has bits and pieces, uh, not wholly reconfigurable, but uh, being able to deal with it in components was easier for me to, to package it up and make sense of it. Yeah. Um, and I certainly found, as I said, with with no, you know, no background in any kind of understanding in these areas, I, I found it, you know, very easy to to read and comprehend. And you know, I think you you lay it out in a way that a non, um, you know, a lay person can understand. Thank you, thank you for that, because that's a very nice compliment, and um, that was something that I was aiming for. And that's the other thing that I think is really challenging about writing a book is, I mean. You come from your own context and trying to figure out how to make it accessible to, to others can be really difficult. Fortunately, I had a number of people who assisted me with it, uh, try to thank them all in the acknowledgments, but, you know, they would read various chapters and give me some feedback about when I'd gone too far or 
hadn't gone far enough. Good. Uh, yeah, and then of course the other book uh, that we mentioned, there's uh, the Kinevin book, uh, is is great, and there's um, you know, your chapter in there is excellent. So we'll put the links to everything and uh, Exceler as well. The, the the firm of which you're a fellow into the description for the show if people want to um, hire you, I suppose, or your firm to yeah, come to buy yes, some of this. Uh, <laughs> kick. Uh, great. All right. Well, thanks again. Um, Thank wonderful you. conversation. Yes, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.